The following podcast contains general advice only and does not take into account your individual circumstances. Listeners should speak to an accountant or financial advisor before making any investment decision. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome everyone to this week's episode of the Market Pulse podcast. We are now up to episode 15 and this is the I Declared It edition. Thank you very much for tuning in this week and as always, feel free to shoot your questions or suggestions through to the show. You can find my email at marketpulsepodcast at gmail.com. Well, I do hope you are, of course, having a lovely weekend, but let's just jump into it and look at what the markets did this week. The ASX 200 had a really good week. It was it was up 4.2%. It's quite similar over seas in the US. So the S&P 500 was up 4.9% and the S&P 500 is now only down 1.1% for 2020. So they've almost they've almost hit back to the levels they started the year at. So what coronavirus? The Nasdaq was up 3.4% this week so yeah pretty pretty similar all around all very positive in terms of market performance of course our domestic market welcomed the continued rise in the index and i guess some of the bigger sectors like the banks they also continue to do really well and, and that was a similar theme last week the, the financial sector on the australian stock exchange this week was actually the best performing sector so it was up 7.39 percent led by some very strong gains with banks like macquarie and then of course the big four Retail banks, CBA, Westpac, ANZ, and NAV. What was a little strange about this rally is, well, there's two things. You know, we started to see some hard data confirmation about our recession here in Australia, which we will go into in just a moment. But a little bit more puzzling, at least to me, was because the recession part isn't that puzzling, you know. Um, it's It was very much expected uh, across the board by everyone. But And this is one of my second points, more of a shot at the US markets, but the US markets just seem to completely shrug off any concern about you know, this huge civil unrest that we've seen over the last week over there, protests, uh, riots, uh, damage to buildings, looting of businesses. They're almost like a zero concern at all. And on one hand, you see the stock market continuing to go up in the US over the week. And then you also see videos of not only just that civil unrest, but areas such as New York and in, and in California where you've seen massive damage to businesses and buildings and you know, businesses completely boarded up. Um, uh, and yeah, it just seems to, again, just be this huge disconnect between what the market is thinking and what seems to be happening, at least on the streets in the US. And I actually spent the, the whole week kind of waiting for some kind of reaction from the markets about what was happening because in some ways the, the market was quite late to react to COVID-19 and when it did it reacted very very quickly or very harshly and I think if anything the US markets are just the same as us in the sense that they're just focused on the reopening of the economy and there have certainly been some stocks over there overseas in the US that have reflected that so I think one of those ones for me that you can clearly see is on its comeback tour is is Boeing. So the airline manufacturer or aerospace manufacturer, Boeing trade overseas on the New York Stock Exchange. And you might recall that Boeing have, they've kind of had a, 
rough is probably a light word for it, but they've had a rough couple of years. And this is before the, the pandemic stuff kicked in because yeah, they, there was two Boeing planes that, that crashed, I think one in 2018. I don't think they were both in 2019. One was 2018, one was 2019. And it was specifically a Boeing model, the 737 MAX. And this caused airlines across the world and governments to unanimously just you know, say, we need to just ground this model of plane because it's too dangerous to fly. There's obviously a problem here. Of course, that uh, was pretty significant reputational damage to Boeing. And I, I think it even caused a lot of change up in, in the executive level there uh, because there was, I think there was reporting around how much Boeing knew about the problem and sort of were not communicating the problem prior to those plane crashes well when uh earlier this year when the pandemic sort of really hit the market and started to concern investors you know boeing as a, as a company just got slammed because just like the entire travel industry much of their success comes from you know people flying around the world so when when all the airlines you know like just at home like a Qantas and a virgin they all grounded their aircraft because there was going to be no flights and alongside, you know, companies like Virgin that was actually experiencing severe financial stress here in Australia, investors were very quick to put the two and two together and assume that the horizon is not quite bright for, you know, a company like Boeing. And, and their shares have, have sumped very hard. So, for example, they were trading around 340 US dollars a share just before the, the market slump from the pandemic really hit. And in March, so they went from 340 US dollars and they hit a low of $89 in March. So a massive drop for Boeing shares. So it, basically to put it in perspective, let's say in early March, you had decided as an investing player, you were going to invest in, in Boeing shares and you put $100,000 of your money in Boeing. At the very worst point in in all this, your 100K was was worth about $26,000. So yeah, what's that? 75% decline in your money basically there. So now the stock of Boeing has recovered a fair bit now and they actually closed the week yesterday of at $205 per share. And again, this is just one micro example of just that broader US market. Uh, at least it appears to be the story that there's a focus on the opening of the economy focused on people getting back to whatever they were doing before the pandemic started. And people also, in terms of travel, people actually returning to uh, booking flights and, and actually traveling around the country because I know I noticed, I think it was American Airlines, it might've been one of the, one of the major US airlines reported that they're starting to see people, um, more people, more people flying. Of course, it's still down compared to overall levels uh, versus you know over the last few years, but they're starting to see that that come back. Uh, the the passengers actually come back and uh, book book flights effectively. Now I do I do think it's it's quite important to remember that with all this optimism surrounding the market at the moment, it's it's not all uh, good news. Of course, in terms of I don't think you know I don't think it's like like we'll just bounce back to pre COVID nineteen levels of things like travel just immediately over the, over the course of a couple months. You know, one example was in the Wall Street Journal, there was a piece on airlines this week and specifically one of the ones they mentioned was Air New Zealand and and that they reported in it that Air New Zealand is still considering 
uh, further reductions to their overall work cost as as sorry overall workforce as a cost saving measure and and they kind of think that and this is the airline itself saying this they think that that's going to take a couple of years well they said two years to return to 70 percent of its pre-covid 19 size so i mean that's the airline themselves saying that like it's not going to return to 100 percent or return to some corner some sense of normality very quickly so that's something we're still watching for now the other thing that came out was really came out in the last 24 hours was there was a, a bit of a better than expected well it was an increase in in u.s jobs for the month of may as opposed to a forecasted decrease in the u.s the labor department came out overnight and it's and it basically said that so the unemployment rate is sitting at 13.3 percent over there but the economy had actually added 2.5 million jobs in the month of may which was contrary to what the sort of broad expectation among economists was, was that there'd be a loss of 8 million jobs instead. So that actually certainly added a fair bit of spring to the market. No doubt there's also uh, at least maybe a potentially starting of a sign of people being rehired or returning to jobs that they might have been actually laid off from due to business closures and I'm sure the market will continue to watch those numbers, of course. Something else I noticed out of the States this week was an article about the valuation of the S&P 500 and what specifically they're referring to in this article in Business Insider was an indicator called the forward PE ratio. Now, I've never really spoken about the PE ratio on the podcast, but it's effectively a measure that analysts use. So people trying to trying to value stocks uh, to try and find the value of a company, or at least it's one way of, of finding the valuation of an investment. So the PE ratio, what it effectively measures is it, it looks at a company's share price. So it might look at, say, uh, Westpac and it's like, okay, it's $20. I don't know what Westpac share price is. I can't remember, but let's say it's $20. And then it compares that share price to what's called earnings per share. Now, what's happening around the world right now is that market analysts or people you know, really trying to study this thing is they're trying to work out how big will the earnings hit be for companies due to the recession, due to shutdowns, due to the pandemic, whatever you want to say, due to all of it. So the idea being that, of course, companies' balance sheets um, and the income statements will be hurt, some a lot more than others. Perhaps some might not be hurt at all, or at least very minimally. Some might actually experience a growth, but whatever we're talking about, the point is the hardest part for these analysts right now is they're trying to work out what those earnings are going to look like for certain companies and whether the price right now for certain company shares are a good investment or whether there might be a bit of a trap um, because of what their future earnings are going to look like because of all the economic damage done by the pandemic. Now, before I, I referenced the phrase forward PE ratio, and that's that's what that is, is it's just like the normal PE ratio in the sense that it looks at the current share price, but, it's, but a forward PE ratio is looking at it uh, relative to expected future earnings. So it's what people who are much smarter than me think 
the earnings of these companies are going to be, so expectations of what they're going to be. Now, I say that they're a lot smarter than me somewhat loosely because they're not wizards and they they've get this stuff wrong. In fact, they get this stuff wrong all the time. I remember seeing, a couple, oh, this is a few years going back now, but um, Goldman Sachs were putting price targets on Bellamy's, which was or which is an infant formula brand. They're, they're no longer listed on the ASX due to a takeover, but, and I don't remember the specific price details or anything like this, but they'd have a price target on Bellamy's. And they might say, oh, we think it's, we think it's $28 and it would f- keep going down and they just keep revising their price target down and down and down and down as the share price kept falling. And I think, you know, Bellamy's ended up as low as, you know, around the $8 mark before, uh, it was actually bought out for, I think it was bought out for closer to 14. But anyway, I just remember thinking it was strange that they kept saying, we think it's worth this and then just kept adjusting that all the way down as the share price slid. Anyway, apart from that, but back to my original point about it, this is the forward PE ratio for the S&P 500 in the US. And because that's not just one company, instead it's the S&P 500, so it's 500 companies. It's looking at the aggregate PE ratio of all these companies. This particular measure in the US is sitting at 20.4, which is the highest level of this measure since since basically the dot-com boom in the early 2000s. Now, again, I'll stress that, of course, analysts do get it wrong. They're, they're human and often a lot, you know, a lot of these companies do provide a thing called guidance where they, they talk about what they think the year is going to be like for them. And a lot of these companies, and it's happened in Australia, of course, too, they've scrapped that guidance because they have no idea. Like a few episodes ago, I talked about how much Disney is suffering and, and they've scrapped guidance, I believe, for the rest of the year because you know, there's no way they're going to know how their business is going to be performed because there's too many factors that they that are somewhat out of their control. But I guess what this is showing you is that at the sort of institutional level, at the investment house level, they're, they're probably starting to think that relative to what earnings might look like over the next 12 months, months that you know, stocks could actually be quite expensive on the S&P 500 right now. You know, it's something to keep, to be mindful of, especially as the market continues to serve, surge over the last few weeks. And I've seen a fair bit of FOMO chatter, especially in places like Twitter and Reddit. But as a simple word of advice, try not to let your emotions control your investment decision, just generally speaking, um, and try not to get too caught up in that FOMO. Actually, I'm about to talk about one of those FOMO stocks next. That's actually quite a good segue. Let's return to Australia for the rest of the podcast. And we'll, it was a big week for a company that has the word pay in it. And I'm not talking about companies like Pushpay or Afterpay that I've spoken about numerous times before, but we're actually talking about ZipPay. Actually, I think the comp- I think it's just called Zip. Actually, but underneath the umbrella is Zip Pay and Zip Money. And Zip is pretty common. I think you. I'm sure you've seen them in your online or in-store shopping experience over the past year. And say, at least from my personal perspective, it's probably the second most, at least recognisable buy now, pay later option. Second to Afterpay. That is now a huge difference uh, between. The two services is Afterpay does not do a credit check on its potential customers, whereas Zip will do a third-party credit check in a similar way to, say, the banks or if you went to a car dealership to get a car loan, they would do those credit checks to look at your um, 
history and see if you have, you know, have a history of defaults or whether you're in good standing. So uh, Zip does do those things. And so whilst there are some structural differences between the two, Zip is a still the same in the sense that it's, you know, get what you want now and you can pay for it through installments uh, over the next few weeks. Now, the, the reason Zip is in the news and it's, it's quite big and exciting news for the company and its shareholders is that they've actually acquired a US buy now, pay later firm called QuadPay. Now, this was actually an expansion on their original holdings to take over QuadPay. So Zip already had, a, had an ownership stake in this company, but they've expanded that to just fully take over QuadPay right now. So what do we know about QuadPay? It's a, well, it's a very, very similar business. They're based in New York in the States. There was an AFR report that says it has 1.5 million US customers. So it's, it's somewhat small and they process 1 billion in sales annually right now. If you compare that to Afterpay, so Afterpay have actually grown their US customer base to several times more that they're seeing at 5 million US customers right now. But this will bring the total amount of customers for Zip to 3.5 once they, they merge and bring in QuadPay. But more importantly, it's just another example of an ASX buy now, pay later uh, firm really starting to take that US market a lot more seriously because we saw we saw the same thing happen when Afterpay expanded into the US. And also on top of that, it's also part of a broader trend among consumers, especially younger consumers, to sort of reject the traditional credit card culture and actually opt in for the buy now, pay later method where you're, you know, you're often not having to worry about things like interest charges and Let's be honest, the, the way interest charges can work on credit cards are not the easiest thing to wrap your head around. I know I've definitely gotten confused about that stuff. But the beauty, I think, of, say, a buy now, pay later is it puts you on a, like a forced payment plan uh, over time and uh, getting that whatever you want, whether it's like a new shirt or something straight away. But I think that's not to say there aren't bad sides to that because I'm sure that can get very addictive. But I think the other side to it is... There is problems with credit cards too in the fact that some people get stuck on you know, the minimum payment or the minimum payment they have to do for the month and sort of end up spinning their wheels for a very long time on that credit card balance. But yes, very good news for Zip and very good news for their shareholders. Of course, the share price surged very significantly this week and no doubt those investors will be continuing to watch their US expansion. Well, as I mentioned at the top of the show that we did have GDP figures coming out this week. Unfortunately, I got the day wrong in my last episode. I said it was going to come out Thursday, but it actually came out Wednesday morning this week. And we saw that GDP has fallen by 0.3% for the March quarter. So that's the January to March period in 2020. We saw some relatively obvious data in those in those uh, in that release. And so people stopped spending money on pretty much everything except for food and pharmaceuticals, which of course makes a lot of sense. Our treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, was asked by the media at the t- uh, on the day that, you know, whether or not we're in a recession, he said yes. And he said, based off the, the his talks with the treasury about what the next quarter will look like uh, when we report on that, I guess, in July. And now you remember I said a recession is defined as two consecutive quarters of negative GDP. And you might be like, well, 
hang on, this is only just one quarter so far. And, and yes, you are correct. As per the textbook definition, we, we actually haven't technically hit a recession, but what the treasurer is sort of saying and what the preliminary numbers indicate is that that next quarter of GDP will be actually worse than this Jan to March one of, of a drop of 0.3%. So no one's expecting anything but a bad quarter. And that's because, we, you know, we've all been we've all been locked up and no one's been doing much, right? And we've had rises in unemployment. People have pulled back on spending. So it's, it's relatively, it's not worth debating the semantics around whether or not we're technically in a recession because it looks like we certainly are. I think the other thing worth talking about quickly from the government side of the table this week was an announcement of further stimulus measures for the economy. Uh, they're calling this one the Home Builder. You can jump on the Treasury website if you really do want to chase specific details on this, but the crux of the matter is that it is in the form of a grant from the government to people who are looking to build so build a new home or renovate an, ex an existing home. So this grant is in the form of $25,000 from the government. In the case of someone who is, or people who are building, say if, say if you're someone that's, uh, you're a couple and you're building your first home, it can't be for a you know, property worth more than 750K. And in the case of someone, say, renovating their home, the renovation has to be for a minimum of 150K and it can't be on a property that's worth more than 1.5 million. So it's like all of Sydney. <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know. There are a couple sort of other details that, you know, just around you have to, you can't be on an income level that's too high. There's sort of caps on that stuff. And anyway, I'm not going to go into it, but the, the point of me bringing this up is this is directly in response to ABS data that shows that you know, things like approvals for new home construction and building and the amount of spending that people are doing on renovations has, as you can quite rightly imagine, has, has pulled back quite significantly due to the, to the current economic conditions. Generally speaking, of course, from, from a behavior point of view, people will pull back on those kind of things, especially under economic conditions like we're facing. You know, if you were if you're worried about job security, you're not going to drop tens of thousands of dollars into building some stuff for your house. And of course, that kind of puts a lot of pressure on our building and construction sector and, and the employees or the people that work in that sector. So that's from the government side of thing. I'm not going to go too much. Though. I, know I did obviously read, of course, some of the criticism that's been uh, sort of sent at this particular plan or at least the specifics of this plan and I think it might have been worth the government considering perhaps a lower spend on re uh, renovations to say so that's not to say that they didn't think of this like you know I have no idea but 150k for a re renovation is is quite a lot of money yeah it's not your standard bathroom refurbishment if if that means anything but yeah maybe if I was doing it myself I'd maybe consider a tiered strategy so Yes, if you spend 150k on the reno, we'll give you 25k. But at the same time, if you only spent 50k, we'll give you a similar percentage. So we'll give you around 8.5k as the grant. Perhaps if you have those sort of smaller offers in place or those smaller style renovations considered, you'll it'll look very enticing to those who probably don't have heaps and heaps of money for a renovation, but they have a bit to do some some minor work around the house. 
anyway, I can't believe I just said if I was in, <laughs> if I was in charge, I'm one of those people now. But um, that's probably the only thing that I thought about it when I when I looked into the details. All right, this is this is it for this week. It honestly felt like it flew by. I feel like I've only been talking for a little bit, but I'm looking at my recording and I'm at almost 26 minutes. Thank you very much for tuning into the podcast as always. My name is Dion Gribben. If you do have a question for the show, shoot it at the Gmail address, which you can find in the description of the podcast or at least the podcast episode. As I mentioned last week, one of the things you can do to support the show is tell your friends. So if you've got anyone in your life that wants to be updated on what's happening in the markets and in the economy, and you think they'd enjoy this kind of podcast, let them know. Leave a review, leave a rating on the podcast. Anyway, thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. My name is Dion again. Cheers. Cheers.